And these are indeed exciting days. There are world leaders speaking about a new world order, about a global reset. And if you know your Bible, that shouldn't surprise you because these are things the Scripture speaks will happen. Now, before we finish this series, I hope to discuss this subject in detail. But the reality is, is it will not happen, at least in its initial stage, until the Antichrist comes. But the fact that people are speaking in these terms is of great significance. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Over the next three days, Pastor Carl will be focusing on the first 14 verses of the Olivet Discourse. Today's sermon is entitled, The Beginning of the End. We will be in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. Please join us in the book of Matthew now as we begin. I want to invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn to the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 24. If you're new to the Bible, it's pretty easy to find. It's the very first book in the New Testament. And if you're joining us for the first time, we are in between books of a verse-by-verse exposition, and we are doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And these are indeed exciting days. There are world leaders speaking about a new world order, about a global reset. And if you know your Bible, that shouldn't surprise you because these are things the Scripture speaks will happen. Now, before we finish this series, I hope to discuss this subject in detail. But the reality is, is it will not happen, at least in its initial stage, until the Antichrist comes. But the fact that people are speaking in these terms is of great significance because this is what the Antichrist is going to attempt to do. But ultimately, the real new world order... The real global reset will take place when Jesus comes. Listen to these words in the Revelation. Revelation eleven thirteen. the kingdom of this world. Now, I know we sing the kingdoms of this world, but it's actually singular in the Greek New Testament. The kingdom of this world, because when Adam rebelled against God, he lost his right to rule. And the God of this world has now basically been given that kingdom. And that's why in a very real legitimate way, he offered Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you this world. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, many are trying to bring this about. They hope that somehow we can manipulate the world to make it a better place to live. But that's really like shining the brass on the Titanic, rearranging the chairs on its deck because it's going under. Ultimately, this world, be realistic, the Bible teaches it is going to be burned and destroyed with fire. I know when you preach that, people laugh at you, they make fun of you, but mockery has always been one of Satan's chief tools, ridicule, scoffing, mockery. Why? Because he really doesn't have anything else to say. Not to mention, that's his very nature. Jesus said he does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks and utters lies. And so Mr. Liar, because he has no real substance, will attack those of us who preach the word of God. They'll call us narrow, bigoted, literalists, 
homophobic, puritanical. They'll come up with all kinds of terms to try to discourage you. But you shouldn't be discouraged. It's something that Scripture says will happen, especially at the end of the age. Scoffers will come. We did a whole message on that very thing. There's always been scoffing, but it's going to intensify at the end of the age. And it's one aspect of persecution. Now, to help us to visualize where we are and where we've been, this chart uh, might help us to see it. If you can notice here, the next great event on God's prophetic schedule is called the rapture. And so we open this series dealing with Israel's rebirth and the rapture of the church. Nothing is ever needed to be fulfilled prophetically for the rapture to take place. Whereas the second coming, that is a prophetically driven event. And after the rapture, there's a small space of time. We don't know exactly how long, weeks, days, months. Some would say years, but I'm very doubtful that it would be years in light of the way the prophetic schedule is unfolded in the New Testament. A uh, covenant is made with Israel, and that makes the clock begin to tick for a seven-year period known as the tribulation period. In Daniel's prophecy, the 70th week prophecy of Daniel, if that's a new term, maybe think about going back and listening to the message on Daniel 9. There's actually four on that. But that seven-year period is divided into two halves. In the middle, you have the abomination of desolation. Three and a half years of tribulation, that one event takes place, and then three and a half years of great tribulation. Things intensify significantly. That ushers in the second coming of Christ and his thousand-year reign upon the earth. Now, God could have certainly have raptured the church in 300 AD, but he didn't. He could have certainly uh, gathered the Jewish people from the ends of the earth in 300 AD and then brought about the second coming of Christ, but he didn't. In fact, he waited nearly two millennia to do what the scriptures predicted that he would gather the Jewish people. And seemingly nothing happened for 1,900 years. And then God supernaturally has brought the Jewish people back into the land. And just as the prophet said, they became a nation in a single day. Reestablish them. And so uh, we also studied uh, the world powers that will be involved at the end of time as we studied Ezekiel 38 and the battle of Gog and Magog. Here's a picture just taken three weeks ago. Again, these three world leaders from Russia, Iran, and Turkey, they are three major nations that the scripture predicts will work together to try to destroy Israel. And so again, the fact that God is fulfilling prophecy, these, these nations, by the way, forever have been enemies, but they are common bedfellows for the objective of driving Israel into the sea. And so when you see God fulfilling prophecy for the second coming, then you know the rapture is that much closer. And then if you remember, we studied the day of the Lord that will come like a thief in the night. Again, this chart, just to visualize it, the day of the Lord is like the day of your youth. It's not a single day. It's a protracted period of time. It begins in darkness with the great tribulation. The second coming, when Jesus comes back, it will be bright and glorious for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, it will get dark again. 
And so it's a period of time that begins with the tribulation. And so sometimes when you read of the day of the Lord, it's just descriptive of a horrible time. But in other Old Testament passages, it's descriptive of a magnificent, beautiful time. Well, it depends what part of the day of the Lord that you are in. And then from there, we went on and we looked at apostasy. You know, there is a coming apostasy like the world has never seen, the apostasy. We're going to study the apostasy. We haven't come to that. But the fact is, is that at the end of time, there'll be growing apostasy. That is people who have been exposed to the truth, but have rejected the truth. There'll be growing mockers at the end of time. There'll be the moral permissiveness of Noah's day and the sexual perversion of Lot's day. And so with Israel in the land and all of these things happening together, there's a convergence of signs that you almost have to be blind. And of course, uh, the lost will be in shock when the church is raptured and then the day of the Lord begins. But Paul reminds us, but you brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. So in one respect, I suppose it will be a surprise for everybody because no one knows the exact day or hour when Christ will come and catch up his church. But we should know the times and the seasons, Paul says. We're not in darkness. We're sons of light. We should be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. Now, this morning, we're going to focus on the first 14 verses of the Olivet Discourse. We call it the Olivet Discourse because it was given on the Mount of Olives. And there are two chapters, 24 and 25, that in the months, I say months, I'm not sure how long, um, maybe the month ahead, we will work through this portion of Scripture. I want to begin by reading our text, Matthew 24. I hope you've brought a Bible. Follow along, beginning now in verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Now, by way of introduction, I want us to consider the setting, because if you miss the setting, you'll miss the significance of what is unfolding in this chapter of Scripture. If you remember, if you look back into chapters 22 and 23, Jesus rebukes the leadership of Israel for their hypocrisy and for their unbelief. And uh, he compares those, that generation that he ministered to, to those who in prior generations murdered and slaughtered the prophets of God. 
Notice in Matthew 23 and in verse 36, Jesus said, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And of course, these things refers to the rejection and the persecution of God's man in verses 33 to 35, not to mention the destruction of the temple and the scattering of the Jewish people to the four corners of the earth. And so this generation will suffer. Why? Because of its leaders and because the people didn't abandon their leaders but followed their leaders, they will suffer with them. Not all Jews rejected Jesus. The early church was initially all Jewish. But overall, he came to his own, but his own received him not. And so if they had only responded, the Lord would have been able to have protected them. And yet, like a loving parent, he doesn't abandon Israel. Look at verse 37 of chapter 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, in the older edition of the NASB, it says, oh, Jerusalem. It's in the vocative. And that's important because there's a deep sense of emotion that's being expressed here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Not unable, but unwilling. Jesus wants to gather his people, but instead he predicts they're going to be scattered. And that will happen through the judgment that the Romans will bring 68 to 70 AD. Then in uh, Luke 21 and verse 24, we're given some details to fill it in. It It says there, and they will fall this coming day. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus predicts here in the Mount of Olives, the Romans are going to come, they're going to destroy the temple, and the Jewish people are going to be scattered to all the nations of the world. And by the way, that is precisely what history records is happening. And so in verse 38, Matthew gives us some details of this coming invasion. It was in the future from Jesus' perspective, obviously. He said, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And of course, every Jew understood the term house. And in this context, to refer to the house of Yahweh, the house of the Lord, the temple, the house of God is going to be left desolate. And so while God promised to scatter the Jewish people to all the nations of the world, he would not abandon the Jewish people. Look at verse 39. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until. You should circle that word until. It's critical to understanding the whole verse. You will not see me until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Aranai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So not only does this verse speak of the certainty of this coming judgment, it also looks to a future time of blessing and faith upon the nation. And it's an important verse because it's a reminder, Jesus Christ cannot come back at the second coming until the Jewish people acknowledge that this one who came in the name of the Lord, they will acknowledge indeed that he did. They will say before his second coming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this context is important in terms of verse one and this house being left desolate And so notice the discussion that begins. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away from his disciples. 
uh, going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, Mark 13 adds a small detail, but important. Let me read 13.1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, Herod began to build the temple in 20 B.C., and even after he died in 4 B.C., it continued. Uh, In fact, when Jesus was alive, he stated in John chapter 2 that it had been under construction for a total of 46 years. In fact, it wasn't completed until 64 A.D. when Herod Antipas finally did it. Now, some people call it the third temple because it's a total rebuild. But technically, most will refer to it as the second temple. Because Herod the Great, as Herod Antipas, had an agreement. There are seven Herods in the New Testament. So you always want to ask which one. Most of you know at least Herod the Great, right, from Christmas. And Herod Antipas, the one before whom Jesus stood and was condemned. They had an agreement that the temple would never be shut down. You know, there was a, there's a fellow not far from here, just up the street, and he had a, up on stilts this uh, re, you know, manufactured home, a, a trailer, and he wanted to tear it down and build a house. And the county said, no, you can't do that. We won't let you do that. So what he did is he, he built around the trailer. He built a house right around the trailer, and then he dismantled the trailer piece by piece from the inside. I went into that house one day to share the gospel with him. It was a magnificent thing he did. That's kind of what Herod did. He literally built a new house all the way around the old temple and dismantled the one that was on the inside. And it was indeed magnificent. But since it was never shut down, it's typically referred to as the second temple. Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, obviously, the disciples' comments were indeed purposeful. They had seen Jesus earlier in the week on Palm Sunday literally weep, one of three times when he weeps in Scripture. And here, brokenhearted on this day, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who stones the prophets and so forth. And he's speaking of the house of God being left desolate. How is this going to happen? Why would it happen? Well, again, remember they had seen his salty tears. They had seen his broken heart. So indeed, they are wondering, how is this going to unfold? In addition, remember the Jewish people beginning with the tabernacle, which in a couple places is actually called a temple. And then the later more permanent structure that Solomon built, and that was torn down. And then Zerubbabel built one, and Herod rebuilt it. The way the people related to God was through this worship center. So if there's no worship center, how are we going to relate to you if the temple is left desolate? It's an important question. And of course, on Thursday night of that week, he is going to have the Lord's Supper, and he's going to remind them of the new covenant spoken of in the Old Testament that he would initiate and enact with his own shed blood that we just sang about. But this temple was breathtaking. It was covered in gold and silver and copper and bronze, and even the limestone was whitewashed. Uh, Josephus called it a mountain of snow and a mountain of gold. And Jesus said to them, verse 2, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Maybe I thought about it this week. What would be a parallel statement in our day? Well, in 1990, the World Trade Centers, at least at the time, for a short time, were the two largest 
buildings in the world. Can you imagine someone saying, you see these twin towers? Not one floor will be left upon another. And people would think, are, are, you, are you crazy? And for Jesus to make this statement, it was incredibly dramatic. It's going to be left desolate. It's almost inconceivable. And he said here, not one stone would be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, remember, there is already seeds of rebellion that had been planted in the empire, and many people didn't want Jesus because he wasn't a part of that insurrection. In fact, on the day in which he was crucified, you will remember there are two thieves, one on either side. They're involved in an insurrection. They're Jewish men. People say, oh, the two thieves, you know, they didn't understand anything about much of anything, and he just kind of loosely, oh, Jesus saved me. That's sheer nonsense. That's an abuse of scripture. He was a Jew. He understood that the one he had been blaspheming and mocking was the one the scripture spoke of. The one who had a kingdom that it wasn't over for Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was the promised Messiah, the one who would come and die and be buried and raised from the dead, who would have a kingdom. Jesus, remember me. So this insurrection is already in play, but it is only going to expand and broaden, which of course will bring Roman judgment. Now, history records, uh, let me read a verse first, Luke 21, 20. Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, this is going to be the Roman response to this coming insurrection, then recognize that her desolation is near. Now, Jesus does not want the true believers to suffer. And so he gives them a warning about when this destruction and judgment where not one stone is left upon another will take place. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and he says at that point, you should flee to the mountains. And of course, history records that the Romans did not want to waste a single Roman life in overthrowing Rome. So what did they do? They did what you sometimes did. They put a siege around the city. They encircled the city of Jerusalem, hoping to starve the Jewish people out. Now, typically, when a siege came, those who were on the outside would flee to the inside, and those who were on the inside would never leave. Jesus gave the exact opposite counsel. When you see these Roman troops come, get out of Dodge. And by the way, Luke recorded Jesus' teaching of this siege. In fact, Mark and Luke give similar warning of a coming time as well that is still in the future. And so this in some ways is a dress rehearsal of another siege that is going to come upon the city of Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation. Now, if you know the Romans and you've read much Roman history, then you already know that they were not destroyers of temples. They were preservers. And I think part of that was maybe superstition. You don't destroy the temple of another god. And Titus, as Josephus records, has given, had given specific orders not to destroy the temple. But remember, the temple is layered and covered in gold and silver. And somehow, some flaming arrow, or however it happened, hit the temple, and the great cedars of Lebanon began to burn, and it went up in flames. And all that gold and silver melted and went between the cracks. Add to that, it was rumored that there was great chambers with treasures in them. And so with mighty crowbars or whatever they used, they literally pried apart the rocks. 
to get the gold trapped between the rocks. In Jesus's prophecy was fulfilled where not one stone was left upon another. Here's a photo of some of those very stones. Some of you have stood with me in this spot there in the city of Jerusalem. And one of the stones that's a little brown on the front, that stone is taller than I am. These are huge stones. You can't, I should have taken a picture of myself in the picture to give you a little definition. These are massive stones. And not one stone was left upon the other. The only thing that was left, of course, was the retaining wall that Herod built. The top was wiped off. And by the way, it's a reminder that we don't first live by reason. We live by revelation. It may seem by reason that the Twin Towers would never fall. And it may seem by reason that God's temple would never come down because now we're not talking about the might and power of America to protect one of its buildings. We're talking about God's house, God Almighty. We're speaking of his magnificent house. How is this going to come down? You don't live by reason. You live by revelation. And that's why there's many replacement theologians today. Christians who say God is done with Israel. How did they come to that conclusion? Well, there are a number of factors, but one being is nothing happened with the Jews for 1900 years. So you had a ripe uh, environment to say that God was done with the Jewish people. But of course, he's not. And God said he would gather them at the end of time, and he did precisely what he wrote. In further describing the setting, we read now in verse 3, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, notice the scene changes. If you go back to chapter 21, they enter into the temple. Now they have left the temple, and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking across the Kidron Valley at the temple. And they come to him in private, and Mark 13 tells us there's four disciples who come to him, Peter, James, John, and Andrew specifically. And he's no longer speaking to the large group. He's speaking just to these four disciples. And if, if you were sitting today on the Mount of Olives, this is what you'd see you would see that same temple platform, it's 35 acres square, and on it this pagan building, the Dome of the Rock along with one of their mosques next to it and some other smaller buildings. And God willing, next fall we will go back to Israel and maybe some of you will come and you will see this. But what did they see in Jesus' day? This is what they saw, they saw the house of the Lord. And so the disciples, they, they come to him in private, and he's doing precisely what he had already said after the nation officially rejected him and said, you're not God, you're, you're the devil's man, Matthew 12. Then Matthew 13, Dr. Pentecost used to always say, the way to understand chapter 13 is to know that chapter 12 comes before it. I'll never forget that. He burned that into my heart. They reject the nation, and so they reject Jesus. So in 13, he begins to speak to them in parables. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Join us tomorrow for part two of Pastor Carl's sermon, The Beginning of the End. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-787. 7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 010. 
Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or at searchthescriptures.org. If you missed any previous message in this series, remember that you can also download the Search the Scriptures app found on the Apple and Google Play Store. Just type Search the Scriptures and look for the blue icon with the white triangle. On the app, you can download messages to listen to anytime, anywhere. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.